So welcome back to Outside the Box, our EMS podcast to drive clinical performance. We have a special guest with us today as we talk about some clinical topics. And uh, Jay Barrera is the training chief up at uh, ESD48, responsible for driving their clinical performance in practice. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. Nice to be here. So why don't you tell us about uh, you, some of your experience, your background, and, and help us get to know you a little bit. All right. Uh, well, I got into EMS in 2005. Uh, I tripped into it because I needed first aid training for a camp that I run. And every time I sign up for a class, it'd get canceled. So I finally took an EMT class that the local volunteer fire department offered. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'll make a few bucks on the side. And now we're in 2023 and somehow I ended up making a career out of this thing. So it's been pretty interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like it because you and I got to meet each other. Yes. Career, so uh, I'm not complaining about it anymore. No, I, no. I, I got no. I got very few complaints of any. So <laughs> not about knowing you, just uh, about, you high. know, EMS. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've been doing it uh, however many years that is. Almost, almost 20, 18 years, I guess now. Um, was an EMT for a couple years. Uh, went on straight through to get my paramedic. I took a, a fast track class. Don't recommend it. Um, a lot of information to come at you in six weeks. So basically I had to read two different paramedic textbooks to, to get my paramedic and then, uh, decided, um, to, to work. We were West I-10, but I was with Austin County EMS first, uh, got my feet wet there, moved on to West I-10 fire department, and then they transitioned into ESD 48 and, um, became, uh, FTO with them and then moved my, uh, Moved on. The, the, my predecessor moved to another department, and uh, I finished my degree finally at 49 years of age, and then uh, put in for that position. And I've been doing that for the last uh, be two years, starting three years in March. There you go. Very nice. Excellent. Yeah. So, uh, full disclosure, Jane, I do go back a little bit and have a little a bit. bit of history, yeah. and that's why I was really excited to bring him on here because these are the discussions that you and I would have on a regular basis. Yeah. That we'd bring these kind of topics up, we'd pick them apart. And uh, this is a fantastic demonstration of how we want this information to come across to the field when we discuss these topics. Correct. So today, today we're talking about PEEP. We're talking about PEEP. So PEEP. you have experience with PEEP. I have some experience with PEEP. Nice. And a uh, handful of devices to generate PEEP that you've used? Yes. Uh, obviously, it started off with the PEEP valve on a BBM. Um, and I, so obviously PEEP standing for positive and expiratory pressure um but you throw that out there i'm not the guy that you know i'm not a big word guy i'm very much down in the dirt and tell me what it means and, and i'm a visual learner so if i can't you know grasp that that what it actually does it, it's harder for me to remember and learn it and so uh, i literally had to break down positive okay so that's a plus right and so it's at the end of something expiratory okay i'm breathing out and then obviously pressure. So it's what's left over after I've exhaled. And that's how I kind of had to remember that. But then when the first time I ever saw it, I had a brief stand at Fayette County EMS and the, the clinical manager there was showing us a rescue pod. And so he put it on and he squeezed it and, and I got to see how PEEP actually worked on that. And I was like, oh, now I get it. And so from there, it just, you know, then we got the little the PEEP valves we put on the BBMs. And then of course we use it on our uh, event. We use the, the Z vent at our department. So um, it's a, it's a very interesting, but yet very necessary tool 
mm-hmm. in managing airway and ventilation. So, right. And, and as we talk about it today, we're not talking about uh, any one specific modality. No. We'll talk about it in CPAP with intrinsic ventilations. We'll talk about it with mechanical ventilations. And uh, kind of the principles carry across the board. Mm-hmm. It's just, am I producing my own ventilations or are you producing my ventilations for me? But right, so all these things, or are we helping each other out? Maybe we're doing both, yeah. right? We are. So we get the, the ventilator in there. We have some of those settings and um, something you can look forward to as we come up through the summer. So you talked about how you, how like, how you grasped onto PEEP and how you mm-hmm. learned it. Have you heard any other peculiar, interesting ways to explain the concept of PEEP throughout your years? Um... You know, I was I was thinking about that, and I haven't really had something that's just been so far out there. Most of the time, I've I've been exposed to it. It's been a very, you know, that that clinical talk that that seems to be high if you're not following it. And you know, that's where I have to kind of I'll make a note to myself and be like, All right, look this up. You know, Google this later or whatever. Um, I've gone through YouTube videos discussing it. I've gone through different classes and and once you kind of get that grasp it's it's pretty simple um and so to answer your question no i haven't really found anything just really odd and out there but i've found a lot of cool ways that people have shown it Mm. uh the biggest one is is with the balloon and a bbm um and then i i kind of stole that idea because you know nothing's really sacred and you know we we take what we we can use and and so I actually use that when I talk about drownings and, and, and even talk about like washing out surfactant, you know, you fill up that balloon with water and you dump it all out, how it sticks together. And then you can really show peep work well with that. And so, you know, the little things like that, little examples like that is, is what I, what I've seen uh, the most. And it's probably cause I'm not looking for the, the odd way to describe it. I'm looking at it just like, how can I understand it? And then explain it to somebody that may not know. Yeah. I like the balloon one. I like using that one too, that that first blow, and then it starts to get a little bit easier. Right. When we're talking about the alveolar recruitment and getting the alveoli engaged, right? Not, um, but I had the thought not long ago that it peeps essentially a yawn, right? Like you go to yawn yeah. and this, your chest walls pulling open, increasing the, the pressure gradient, more negative pressure in to pull air in. And really that's what we're doing is kind of stretching alveoli, increasing that surface wall to exchange gas. That's a good uh, point. I hadn't thought about it that way. And, right? I mean, you yawn randomly throughout the day. Right. You may not even be tired. Of course, now you mentioned yawn, so I may end up yawning. You probably will. Don't take it personal. Okay. <laughs> so, um, right? But that's all we're really trying to do with PEEP is get the LVLA open. Open, yeah. Or stretch them out. Um, Right, we talk about a whole lot of different things about, especially with pulmonary edema or drowning, like you're talking about. Then we have water in that space. We're not necessarily displacing the water. It's it's all about stretching, right? The alveoli, right? So, um, I like the balloon one. I like talking about the yawns and like you're talking about these demonstrations. The mm-hmm. the best one I've seen is it's another YouTube video, but it's a cadaver lung. Mm. Uh, you know that you you see. The lungs inflated, you, they're held open with this cracked chest. Right. And then you take this peep valve off and there it goes. All just down. all goes down. Inflation. Um, we actually made one of our own for that very reason in the, in our last cadaver dive and we have it. I, I actually use it in my, uh, I have a pediatric drowning talk where we, I use that because to me, nothing shows you more what it does when you, until you have a mm-hmm. chest open and you're seeing the lungs work. We'll have to get a hold of that too and we'll, we'll pass it on. I'll send it to you. So absolutely. Um Right, so so peep, um, we we use it to increase oxygenation, mm-hmm. right? Like we talked about, and we alluded to it a little bit uh, that we increase the space 
that we exchange gas. Right. But there's there's two mechanisms that increase oxygenation in the body. Right. There's the volume and there's the pressure. Mm -hmm. And CPAP kind of plays on both of them, which is peculiar because it's not a ventilatory technique. Right. So um, pulling out some of the literature we talked about, this is where we get kind of fun and, and brainy here, that uh, alveolar recruitment, opening the alveoli happens mm -hmm. during inspiration when we right. inhale. Right. Right. But we're talking about the end and the very positive pressure. So, right. So we're manipulating the inspiratory mechanisms with an expiratory process to produce high volume and high pressure oxygenation into this bloodstream. So um, I like thinking about these things a little bit deeper. You know me, I'm a nerd. Right. Like we just say, hey, it keeps pressure in the lungs and it makes it easier to do these things. And that right. might be good enough. But again, I I like taking it a step further. This is sure. This is... The, this this recruitment, this uh, inspiratory phenomenon that we're capitalizing on, we're producing. Okay. So, um, and that's where we get those. I'm sure you've had plenty of them too. That you get the respiratory distress patient, you, patient, you get that uh, pulmonary edema, and you're like, uh, is CPAP going to work? It's right. One of those. It's going to work. It's not. Let's try putting it on the patient. We caught them, turned them around, and you get the ones. You put it on, and four breaths later, they're starting to nod, and it's okay. Right, it's the way this one goes. Right, so um, if the inspiration is not there to produce the start of the recruitment, we can't enhance the recruitment. Correct. Repeat. So um, that's the phone number with, with CPAP, right? That we need to have those pieces together. So, and CPAP's an interesting thing just on its, on its own because, I mean, it's in the name, right? Continuous positive effort. So you're just constantly throwing air Mm -hmm. Throwing oxygen and hoping that it, in a sense, sticks. And until you've been on CPAP and you can't exhale to get to that end, that's a whole other issue. And that's why it's mm -hmm. very important for us to to monitor those, that pressure, to monitor that 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 peep, because you got to be able to breathe out to get to the end. Absolutely, and that's a fantastic segue into the discussion of managing a VQ mismatch mm -hmm. with CPAP and how uh, what a challenge that we're dealing with that. It's it's one thing to have pulmonary edema or even pneumonia, right? Lung full of junk. Put this pressure on there. Open the alveoli. We increase the oxygenation, um, but we're missing half of the ventilatory cycle, like I right. mentioned, right? And a lot of times we talk about respiratory management, airway management. Talk about our our goals to oxygenate and ventilate. Mm -hmm. And you know me, words matter. Words do matter. Important. Yes. So I'm going to say we take ventilation out of there. We kind of replace it with elimination because ultimately right. that's what ventilation is right i mean we talk about minute volume and and eliminating waste as we measure right rate and, vo and tidal volumes so if we focus on oxygenation that's pretty specific mm -hmm. ventilation is kind of broad so we need right. to get on the same level of specificity right. um so cpap doesn't help us with elimination no not at all so let's go back to the drowning because i've mm -hmm. done quite a bit of of preparation research especially with the pediatrics and Unfortunately, drowning season is going to be coming up here pretty quickly. Oh, yes. Um, and that is one of the most classic examples of a VQ mismatch that mm -hmm. we could come across. And I think it's a really good dramatic demonstration of a VQ mismatch. Right. Uh, so before we dive too deep, help us understand a ventilation perfusion mismatch and how drowning itself is going to put us in this VQ mismatch situation. So obviously VQ mismatch V is is your ventilation. The Q is your circulation. Mm -hmm. 
So, and I saw a great diagram of it one time and they, uh, so that they've got the, the blood flow coming in. The idea is it's going to your lungs. Um, and you've got one small, very narrow, uh, we'll call it the capillary. Um, and then you've got a wider one as well. And the wider one signifies the circulation. There's plenty of circulation there moving by. Up top, there's plenty of ventilation coming in, but you're not just you're just not getting that circulation to, to carry that the, those gases that gas exchange. And so when you look at causes, obviously in a drowning, you've got a liquid medium that's coming there and has blocked your ability to ventilate that patient. Your circulation hasn't been interrupted, so to speak. Obviously, the, the child or the, the the drowning victim may have arrested. Obviously, there your circulation has been interrupted. But let's just, for argument's sake, say they're still able to to try. You've got a, a barrier between that. So that that ventilation, that oxygen coming in is not able to get to the circulation. The the carbon dioxide is not able to get into the alveoli to go out because there's a wall there, a wall of water or whatever. Um, Which in then produces your arrest. Your mismatch. It, it produces your arrest and it produces that whole mismatch. Right. So the, this mismatch is, is an important component when we start talking about cardiac arrest management right. and we start addressing reversible causes it's not so much just here's a hypoxic patient that arrested it's here's this mismatched patient yes and that takes more than just filling it with oxygen yes so yeah yeah because i could dump all the oxygen i want you know i could 100 liters per minute you know fio2 of 100 percent. great still got a wall i got to get through mm -hmm. and until i can resolve that wall and maybe it's with that alveolar recruitment of increasing your peep then now i've kind of made a larger wall and maybe not as much water now i can get some some ventilation and circulation exchange, um, but it, it's just, you know drowning. That's that's a foreign object that comes in. But what about the pulmonary edema patient? What about your pulmonary embolus patient? You know now it's affecting a different side. So it, and of course there's always the thing you know EMS is, is never cut and dry. So what if you have the pulmonary edema with the pulmonary embolus? <laughs> you know what do you do then? And so um, all of that is to say is you know. The, the the VQ mismatch relies heavily on PEEP. It also relies heavily on circulation, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we can hopefully get that gas exchange. And we've also got to be able to have ventilation, which is breathing in and breathing out, getting that, that transfer of waste out of there. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of work to do in the EMS standpoint to, to make that happen. Suction's involved, maybe innovation, maybe... I mean, depending on the, the department, you know, is it OPA, BVM, is it an NPA, is it a IGEL, is it a whatever else, King tube, whatever people are using. The tool's great, but I've still got to get to that alveolar wall with ventilation and get the circulation passed. So I've got to address that wall. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Pete, did I go off on a tangent? No, if I did, I'm so that, was, that was fabulous. Okay. <laughs> I, I wanted to bring in some follow-up questions, but I think you hit all the things I wanted to Um <laughs> Because we talked about about drowning being that very good classic example of a, a ventilation perfusion mismatch, that VQ problem. Um, you mentioned a pulmonary embolism, which is another fantastic one because there's a physical barrier between air coming in and out of the lungs, right? And the blood coming to that area that uh, that that PE is just going to create dead space in the lungs. Um, you know, dead space being that it's not exchanging anything, right? But on both sides, there's there's the blood on this side, there's the the air on this side, and man, they're so close. Right, they're close. It's like I can see you through there, right? But they're not they're not playing. So, um, 
So let's take PE for a minute. So okay. You mentioned this. It, Which PE? Pulmonary embolism? Embolism. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I got you. Pulmonary it with an embolism, right? All right. So with this, this obstruction, is PEEP really going to help out a lot directly on this PE, on this amount of dead space that is now created by this insult? So it will not help. In, you know, it will not help directly in that particular, wherever that blockage is, right? Mm-hmm. Wherever that that pulmonary embolus is, it's not going to address it. You're not. We're we're going to have to do other things to get that out of there, right? And this is where the mismatch comes into play, because all right, now I add peep. So I'm so if I'm in the left lung, I have a blockage there. I increase my peep. The peep goes to both lungs. I've increased my ability to ventilate and circulate on the right lung, so to speak. Left lung, maybe not. So there's now a mismatch because I've increased my alveolar wall. I've, I've allowed that to happen. My circulation kind of stays the same, but now my ventilation is increased. Mm-hmm. So there's a mismatch on that side, but not, not on the other side. Right. So I've got to figure out, you know, now can I keep a patient at 98, 99%? Maybe, depending on how big that, that embolus is. But, uh, but yeah, there's definitely a mismatch there now because... And I can't do anything until I get that clawed no, out. Can't correct. We can't directly correct that mismatch. And interestingly enough, uh, because we all love end title, right? You do, right? We come into end title and we say there's this mismatch because circulation's still happening, still producing cellular waste, which converts to CO2, right? That we might expect the CO2 to be high in a pulmonary embolism because the CO2 production is happening, right? But we've got to remember there's that barrier that we only measure CO2 at the face yep. when it comes out. And it's not coming out yet. So we get a PE. We recognize it as such. The signs and symptoms are there. Tachycardic, low end uh, tidal, all these concerns. And we put them on CPAP. We give them a little bit of PEEP to help with the oxygenation. And the end tidal goes up from, say, 15 up into the mid-20s. I'm going to call that a fantastic sign. How oh, absolutely. About that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was at 15 before. So any improvement is better than no improvement. This is true. And this is this is a good example of how I feel about reference ranges. Mm-hmm. That we're not 35 to 45. Oh my goodness, what are we doing? Well, of course not. Healthy right. people. Right. That's 35 to 45. Not the pulmonary embolism patient. Right. Right. So uh, it's all relative. You're right. We started at 15. We got to 25. We're actually starting to eliminate some of this waste. And hopefully right. the, the oxygenation starts to go with it as well, that maybe that's coming up a little bit better to support this cellular metabolism as well. Um, so- Let's let's kind of take that and let's talk about um, into the exhalation, into the waste side of things. Okay. Let's talk about your experience with bi-level. That, that we all have CPAP readily available. We hook it up to the oxygen tank, throw the mask on in the house. And then the next stage of that is actually making this a comfortable experience for the right. patient. So walk me through some of your experience with, with bi-level. What are some challenges you faced? What are some benefits you have? So, you know, initially, uh, so first thing came out, CPAP. We're all excited to get CPAP. Yes, we can We can help that CHF patient. I'm, I'm going to push that fluid back out into the circulatory system, get it out of the lungs where it doesn't belong. So I know most people were excited until they saw the reduction in intubation rates. Well, I was like, I don't know that I like CPAP. Right, right. right. All right. So, yeah, so you, there's, there's <laughs> that. Um, but... While we get excited about that, and I remember when I first got a brand new paramedic, like I told you, I had to read two textbooks, so I didn't have all the concepts down. And I'm excited, and I keep turning up. At the time, I didn't realize it was Pete, but I keep turning it up because my my numbers don't look right on the monitor, right? Again, we get into the reference ranges. We're getting into 
Are they better or worse? Nope. They're not hitting the number I need to hit, so I got to keep turning it up. And then CPAP's not working as well. Why? Because they can't breathe out. Yeah, I'm shoving all kinds of oxygen into them, but they can't get it out. So it's like, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. I'm so stupid. Well, try it. Maybe I give you a little reset to get you relaxed. doesn't matter. They can't breathe. Why? Because they can't exhale. So fast forward a few years when I've learned more and when I've gotten some equipment that allows me to adjust that. You know, we tell them now, put a 10 over five, pressure support 10, PEEP of five, right? What does PEEP do? PEEP is keeping my, my alveoli open. Pressure support is just a ma- amount of it. So now I can push in, but it's going to recognize enough when I go to exhale that it's going to allow me to exhale. And I'm like, oh, yes, now I can breathe. Right. You know, so it's it just, it, it's it's that whole, it's it was a game changer. Mm-hmm. A slight little difference, but it was a game changer. Right. And it is because we take the pressure support. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back. Let's say we have the CPAP and uh, this constant pressure. We put somebody on 10, 12, 15, 20. Right. 20 a peep. We're like, oh, great. Those LVLA are open, man. But if we put so much pressure in there, right, breathing out is supposed to be the relaxing part. Right. It's supposed to be the muscles just coming out and squeezing the air out. But if we fill this with so much pressure that relaxing right. <laughs> doesn't happen. Right. Um, so, Grand, like looking at some of this literature that it might take an upwards of peep offers like 45 to 60 to actually inflate the alveoli. We're not going to do that. Right. I mean, Holy cow, we don't want those kind of airway pressures. That's going to cause right. barotrauma. But if we're looking at this patient who needs a peep of 10 or 12 or we're flirting with 15, we need to look at some of the other stuff, right? This isn't just a peep only right. kind of resolution at this point. Um, but you're right. And therein comes the the bi-level benefit is we do keep the peep. We do keep things open, but we're able to step it down. And that's the benefit of the machine. And that's right. what we're going to start seeing as we go through the summer enrolling this equipment that CPAP's great for moving somebody out of the house. Yeah. You're upstairs, back bedroom, down the hallway. Great. We'll get you on the CPAP, get you on the stair chair. Right. Uh, we'll get alveoli open and recruited. Um, the challenge, which we'll talk about in a minute, is transferring over from one device to the next. Right. And losing that recruitment. And also, keep in mind, your patients are never up front, right? They're never in the living room waiting for you. They're going to be in the most complex part of their house. You can't get the stretcher to them. You can't. You know, you're you're like, oh crap! I need CPAP. Let me run back over here. They're going to be so far in the corner, and you've got the longer haul, and they're not going to be able to help you. Yeah, you know, they can't walk because they can't breathe. Right. So, so we we get them out there and make it a little more comfortable on the machine. We set them up to be successful. Right. Um. So some side notes with this, some fun questions for you. That if we take this patient, mm-hmm. we get them on CPAP, we get them on bi level, and they get more comfortable. Mm-hmm. End title comes up, oxygenation comes up, work of breathing goes down, right? Mental status improves, all the things we want to see. Mm-hmm. Is this an emergency transport or is this a non-emergency transport? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because we're having a discussion about emergency transports and what qualifies mm-hmm. that at our department right now. And so what we've come down is, is, is it the top three? Is it time sensitive, like a heart attack where I need to get them to a cath lab? Mm-hmm. Is it time sensitive where it's a stroke and they need, you know, comprehensive neurological care? Or is it time sensitive because they need a surgeon because it's trauma? Pretty much I've done everything that the ER is going to do to fix them mm-hmm. at the front end. So I have time to relax. I have time to take care of them. So no, in my opinion, that is not emergency transport. Unless something changes en route, I've managed that patient. And I can 
make my tweaks as I need to make them, if I need to have an adjustment on the oxygen, but I, that should not be a lights and sirens call. I agree. And let's let's be clear, still a sick patient. Still a sick patient. Still very concerning. Right. Absolutely. But not emergent. Not an emergency transport. Right. Um, now, I agree. It, not not able to sit against the wall of the hospital either <laughs> for, for more than, you know, whatever your time frame Maybe is. differing pins on the receiving right. staff. But um, I agree with you 100% that the we're able to do so many things in the field and manage so many things. And that time benefit, I mean, there's no time benefit. Right. And one of my things that I like throwing out there is that the back doors in the hospital are not an intervention. There, there's no therapeutic benefit to the back doors. Especially when you consider how long you might be standing against a wall. This is true. So especially when they hear that your patient's managed, yeah. oh, they're on CPAP, set them over there. I'm like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. But, um, and y'all have a little bit higher capabilities, especially as we're talking about heart failure and pulmonary edema that um, you need to go set this patient up on some infusions to manage some of the hemodynamics right. and things like that. Y'all have these capabilities that we're looking towards in the future to get to. Um, but that's not to say that we're enabled to manage these very well right. in the circumstances where yeah, it is. No, that, yeah. I mean, medicines are medicines, right? I yep. mean, you're going to carry stuff we don't carry. We're going to carry stuff you don't carry. It's still about patient care. It's still about if they're not breathing, we're not doing anything. We've got to help them breathe. And if you don't breathe, you die. Yep. I can help you breathe. So- we're talking about, it, it sounds like BiPAP is a fantastic thing. I like it. CPAP's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And has its place. Both of them have their place. And that's exactly what I want to hear your opinion on. Is there, is it one or the other? Is this both? I think that's kind of a loaded question because it depends on the patient that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, Just in general, in, in EMS in general, do we have a place for bi-level? Do we have a place for CPAP? Absolutely. Do we need to be driving towards one or the other? Uh, I think... I think we have a place for both. And and I say that because think about how many people are on CPAP at night mm -hmm. at the house, right? To help you sleep, to keep your airway open. I'm on CPAP. That's how I knew about I couldn't breathe out the first machine I got. Mm -hmm. So, but CPAP has its place. It Maybe CPAP is all I need in the short run. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe calm them down. Maybe there's some anxiety kicking in, whatever. Maybe it's something a little bit worse. And now I need to, to transfer them over to bi-level. Um, you know, it's like saying, well, then just because somebody's having a respiratory problem, should they all be innovated? Well, no, every tool for what you're dealing with. I have a box of screwdrivers at home, but they are not all the same screwdriver, yeah. but they all turn a screw. Yes. So I like that example. You know, I like that one. right. And it's, it's true. I, I think we got a place for both of them. Cause like I said, uh, you know, we might need it in the house. This is our paradox in pre-hospital medicine though, that there's all kinds of really cool procedures, interventions and equipment. But when this patient's up two flights of stairs, back bedroom, right behind the bed, through or you know whatever they are, because it's like every patient's God-given right to be in the most challenging spot, absolutely find them, um, and that's kind of our medical director's philosophy is that a patient has the God-given right to have as many ailments at a time as they want, absolutely. So to say purely, literature is going to support bi levels better than. CPAP in the long run, and here's the benefits for outcomes. And all these things are true. Mm -hmm. But now we got to take another machine up the stairs, back bedroom, set this up in the house. Like, then we got to move right. this patient. Uh, so I, I see this as, as our paradox in EMS that we can do all of these things and we can enhance our care. Um, how many infusions have you set up and run in a house? Personally, probably just one. Right. I mean, you know, it's either like um, this nitro in an arrest. 
It's not an arrest. Post arrest. Maybe Levo. Maybe an Epi drip. Um, maybe a Nitro drip if it's if I'm dealing with the CHF. But I'm usually not. I'm not the the lifelike transfer medic that's doing you know 15 drips in the mm-hmm. house. I'm I'm doing what I need to do to get them from that spot, and not die on the way to my ambulance. So it's more frequent that you've hit some push dose boluses oh, medication until you get outside to infuse. Absolutely. And my favorite, I have two favorites. Again, depending on why I'm having to do them, but I love push dose uh, nitro, and I love push dose epi, and mainly because they're just so simple. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, push those Levo is pretty simple as well. Once you once you pull it up, once you know your stuff, but just to mix it and, and get it ready to go, it's it's just too easy. So, so the same concept applies to the ventilator. How how many times are you going to bring the ventilator in on a respiratory patient? Right. If I know it's a respiratory patient, then yeah, I'll, say, I'll bring it. Let's say it's your general difficulty breathing. Then does every one of those get the ventilator? No, absolutely not. Right? I mean, we get our standard. You're going to bring your bag. It's going to have a BVM, your adjuncts in it. Right? Going to have your airway stuff in there. You're going to have an O2 bottle. Yep. Um, Because your basic intro medications, albuterol, atrovent. Right. Whatever's called for that that quick intervention. Mm -hmm. Let me get you the truck where I can do more. That's my controlled environment. I can control everything. My temperatures, all that stuff in there. And then we can move you at a correct pace to the correct correct facility i like it i know i like it so all in all place for cpap and a place for bi-level then i think so yeah um if we want to get name brand bipap in there right right um all right so let's see we talked about a lot of little stuff let's talk about um one last little chunk of bit chunk of bit one last little chunk i guess mm-hmm. the inner thoracic pressure we create with CPAP. So we fill the airway with pressure. We fill the lungs and alveoli with pressure, which then transfers outside the lungs to the thorax. And we have yeah. thoracic pressure. Um, there's some other mechanisms that work on this negative pressure besides the lungs. Right. And that's my favorite, the heart. The heart, yeah. Right? So um, let's talk a minute about CPAP doesn't exist in in isolation. That we put somebody on CPAP and we dial it up to fifteen. What are you expecting to see in this patient's hemodynamics, or what are you at least prepared to respond to? Should you start seeing things? In this so, patient? if we go back to my first time dealing with it, where I'm cranking it up, they can't breathe. You know, you're putting a lot of pressure, literal pressure, on that heart, and it's not going to function like it's supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to see. Probably, depending on how long I've got, the, the the lower heart rate, the lower blood pressure, you know. And if I'm dealing with a CHF patient, at first I might be thinking, "Oh, it's working, right? Yeah, their blood pressure's coming down, their heart rate's coming down because our three signs of CHF: what tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypertension, right? So I'm like, "Oh, great, it's working." And but then you keep it watching, going slower and lower, and and you're just like, "Uh, I thought this was supposed to fix the patient, the patient." And again, it's 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 having a grasp and an understanding of what you're doing. Because everything we do, no matter what your intervention, is going to have an effect. Mm-hmm. can be positive. It could be negative. But we may not see that immediate negative. And that's why we just have, that's why continual positive, or positive, continual patient management and assessment is so important. Yes, I want that blood pressure to go down. Yes, I want the heart rate to go down. But I kind of need to have in my head a reference range to say, okay... 
I don't want it going below here. And, mm-hmm. and you have to decide as a medic, and, and I have a friend who used to always say, what's your, what's your well, what do they call it when a helicopter can't go any farther? Your bingo point or something? Oh, heck, I'm, I'm, I drove trucks, man. I did. Uh, whatever. You know, you hear the movie, bingo fuel, you know, hey, I can't go any further because we're not going to make it mm-hmm. back. Okay. And so using that kind of thing, what's your bingo fuel moment for that patient? You know, what's your, hey, I'm not going to let this heart rate or this blood pressure get to here mm-hmm. because then it's going to be harder for me to get back. You know, do I need to make an adjustment on my peak? Do I need to make an adjustment on the amount of pressure I'm giving in a CPAP? And because that intervention, as great as it is, is going to have a negative impact on the patient's circulatory, mm-hmm. the heart, the blood pressure, all of that. Because like you said, I'm increasing all that interthoracic pressure. Yeah. And it's going to make it harder. They're already hard. It's already hard because they're already struggling. Mm-hmm. And their their bingo time might not be very long. It might be past it already. Right. And it is it's very peculiar because you're right especially specifically in heart failure we're gonna have another heart failure episode where we get to talk about some management there but yeah we want the blood pressure to come down right but we have to understand that that uh right side of the heart is counting on the negative pressure yep to suck some blood in fill up the right ventricle put it through the system so that the left side gets that preload so we should anticipate this kind of reduced preload mm-hmm. in a cpap patient now, if we're dealing with an acute heart failure patient where the right side is already damaged and suffering, and that's what's producing this problem to begin with, then, oh my goodness, right. there we go. Um, you know, or if we're dealing with the left side that's actually backing it up where uh, we're hearing all the fluid and having all the trouble, just, right? Yeah. It doesn't exist in isolation. So we go back to my favorite question of why. The... Right? It's the... We get the heart failure patient, and we do want the blood pressure to come down. And it is coming down. And, hey, we celebrate. We high-five. Nice work. But why is it coming? Is it coming down because I gave any kind of blood pressure control? Did I do any kind of vasodilation? And you're right. When you didn't, and this pressure goes from 240 over 120 to 130 over 60, right, with no other therapy but CPAP, this should cause us some concern. Absolutely. It makes me a little bit worried, right? So, um, yeah. So, CPAP is a phenomenal tool. Mm-hmm doesn't exist in isolation, has this butterfly effect to the rest of the body, um, which really is a fun balancing act when we talk about heart failure again. Right. Because as the blood pressure does come down, the body's going to want to respond to that. That's what made us hypertensive in the first place, is that the kidneys tried to help out, dumped all the hormones in there to make all this stuff happen. So they're going to start dumping more. Yep. Right. So back in... It's going to be a fun heart failure episode when we talk about that. Right. So uh, because we've already talked about PEEP. Yeah. So in that episode, we get to talk about a whole lot of the the medication management. So as I double check some of our our last bits of note here, um, man, we talked about CPAP and bilevel themselves. They're kind of lung targeted, mm-hmm. but let's not get myopic on it, right? Let's right. not be tunnel visioned and focused in on that, and let's not forget that the CPAP doesn't help with the elimination, right? Uh, and in fact, if we don't do what we need to enhance the ventilation to eliminate, but we're enhancing oxygenation, we may make a bigger waste problem oh, yeah. by giving more fuel to burn. So um, some pretty interesting discussions as we as we talk about PEEP. Oh, yeah. Are there any other thoughts you want to share with us about, about PEEP, about ventilation, um, knowledge you want to leave us with? You know, just 
sometimes it's hard, I think, especially as you're starting out as a new paramedic. And of course, depending on the level of education you got, you know, you come in and, and the book says this. And while that gives us a great foundation, you've got to be continually learning. You've got to be continually studying. You've got to be that lifelong learner about things because in medicine, things change quick, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just today we had a BVM ventilator class. Uh, at my department just to talk about, you know, BBM's great, but your your medical director, Dr. Humphreys, had a great talk at the Texas Cares about, you know, hey, the size of your hands, uh, the, the, uh, the frequency of which you squeeze the bag, the aggressiveness, all of these things, they matter. It's kind of like words matter. These things matter, and we don't think about them on these respiratory, which, oh, I need to bag the patient. Okay, here we go. You know, or you get that excited brand new firefighter, a brand new EMT that's never done it on a live patient before, and yeah, they're bagging great. Their O2 sat to 100%, but they're not exhaling and they're not, you know, there's all these things. And so you just have to make sure that you're you're constantly getting that baseline knowledge and that you're adding to it every single time. Much like these conversations did not happen overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of it was, hey, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand it better? A lot of it was me going to YouTube and going, okay, I need to figure this out. Um, Kevin gave me his explanation uh, you know, some Mark, my friend Mark gave me his explanation. I got their reasons. Now I got to find mine, mm -hmm. and I've got to, I've got to be able to understand it to the guy that can't understand it. Or I've got to be able to explain it to the guy that can't understand it. And so that that comes. I mean, even getting ready for this, I watched a few YouTube videos, VQ mismatch, making sure I had a full and complete understanding. Because the last thing you want to do is sound like you know what you're talking about, but you don't. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure when people watch this, somebody's gonna go, I, I got it. He's talking. That's cool. They do it with me all the time. Yeah, you know, you're in good company. He forgot this or he forgot that. You know what? I probably did. But based on what we were talking about today, you know, mm -hmm. it's stuff. And I'm going to, I've learned some stuff today. And anytime I talk to you about the heart, I learn stuff. So, you know, but just keep adding. That's that's the biggest thing. And, and you know, ventilation is going to be different for every patient, whether it's a rate, whether it's tidal volume, height, body weight. Ideal body weight versus actual body weight. I mean, there's all kinds of things you got to take into to effect, but keep learning. That that's probably my biggest thing. It's keep learning. So let's close this out with a couple. Uh, recap a couple of these key points. All right. So peep fantastic mm -hmm. opens up the alveoli for oxygenation. We got to be mindful of exhalation. Yep. Um, as we're dealing with the ventilation circulation or VQ mismatch, that ventilation perfusion mismatch. This could be our our means to do that. That if our mismatch is poor alveolar recruitment in drowning, in uh, pulmonary edema, in pneumonia. Right. This could be a, a, an approach to address it. Um, by level, coming soon. Coming soon. I like that. Will be a fantastic uh, tool to move with and kind of make patients a little bit more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And CPAP's going to have hemodynamic impacts. Absolutely. I'm sorry. We can't say so any absolute things. We should be prepared for hemodynamic impacts right. on the CPAP patient. Right? There's no always, there's no never. No, I always always and never. Yeah. We were talking about that. We should be prepared, um, right? Because it, it kind of goes to, uh, I say it tongue in cheek when I say it, that uh, patients don't suddenly deteriorate, right? We just suddenly notice. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's because we just don't know what we're looking for sometimes, that something happened and it's, holy cow, what a change rapidly this is an opportunity that we should anticipate that, that if we get a patient whose blood pressure is starting to bottom out on, on CPAP, we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, we should be prepared for that. And you should be ready to answer the question that is your favorite question. Why, Why? blood pressure go down? Right. 
So, all right. So some good key tips there. Jay, thank you so much for the time yeah, and the yeah. effort to come on to repeat with us today. So I had a great time. I got all excited when we started talking about this. <laughs> this is why I had you. I'm excited. <laughs> so, uh, so thanks for listening. Hope there's some things you took away from it and we'll see you for the next one. Thank you.